text this morning comes to us from the good news according to St. Luke, the 15th chapter. Uh, We'll revisit this in a second, but Jesus is sitting at a dinner, a dinner feast with tax collectors and sinners. And some Pharisees and other religious leaders start complaining and grumbling that he's feasting with these kinds of people. And so he tells them some stories, and this is the third of those stories. So Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, but no one gave him anything. Then when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father. And I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come. And your father has killed the fattened calf. Because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out. And entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me. And all that is mine is yours. It is fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. So the word of the Lord.
doubt most of you have heard this sermon before, popularly called The Prodigal Son. I want to look at it through a little different lens this morning. A friend of mine, uh, one Greg Thompson, who's kind of a public intellectual now and just wrote a really well-received book about the need for Christians to participate in reparations to Americans in the country. He's done a lot of good work. Uh, he once gave a talk to our network, and in this talk, he was talking about the hospitality of God, that idea of God being hospitable to people. And he said this. This is a quote from him, which I think we should think about. He's talking about what it's like to live in a secular age. You know, lots of people of faith wrestle with what does it mean for us to live in an age that is more and more secular. This. He says the chief characteristic of the secular age is not militant coherence, okay? What he's pushing against here is this idea that there's all oh, this secular just sort of deep state of secularism here coming to get us, take away everything, and they're all working in this secret plot to take over all the, you know, all the levers of power and influence and, and just to push secularism. He's like, that's not, that's not the chief characteristic of the secular age. It's not militant coherence. He says the chief characteristic of the secular age is actually homelessness. Homelessness. And he would go on in this talk to talk about the hospitality of God. But I think it's a profound statement, and I think he's largely correct, that what it means to live more and more in our time and in our place, in this part of the world, in this time of history, is to share and experience a sense of homelessness, of dislocation. You know, for far too many of us and our neighbors, maybe literal or material, actually homeless, lacking permanent shelter and safety to belong to. It could be what I've labeled here kind of tribal or ancestral. Uh, if you go on the website and see my bio, it says, I'm from everywhere and nowhere to perspective. Uh, and what I meant by that is I grew up all over, so I don't ever have that sense of, you know, I'm from such and such a place. This is where all my family's from. This is where I grew up. This is what made me who I am. And more and more of us don't have that as much anymore. We're mobile, moving from city to city, place to place, following careers, following where we just away from one another. There's also just a related question to that is the communal. Who do I actually belong to? Who are my people in my family? Who is a part of my home? And that communal gets into what I even call the relational. Uh, this is a whole history lesson in and of itself. But before the industrial age, uh, the, the single unit family wasn't quite so much a thing. There was extended families. People were a home together. There would have been many people. You see this in the New Testament when whole households are baptized because there are all these extended family and servants and people belong together. And it wasn't until Industrial Revolution that we began to think in terms of focusing on a family little bit of, we usually meant two parents and their kids in a house. And that's more and more what we think when we think of homelessness is owning a house. This is like part of the American dream, or even a right that we think we all have, is to live with my little nuclear family and to have a house. But even that, we realize more and more, doesn't satisfy our thirst for James Howard Kunstler, in his book, Home From Nowhere, he says this, if anything, there appears to be an inverse relationship 
between a growing obsession with the home, he's talking about a house, as a totem object. So in other words, we more and more idolize and worship owning a home to house a nuclear family. And he says there seems to be a growing and inverse, or inverse relationship between the more that we worship this house and the singular family unit, it seems that there's more and more disintegration of families. This has, in fact, become the social phenomenon of our time. We worship this idealized container for family life, and yet it turns out that the family cannot be sustained without the larger container of community life. Community life. This irony that in trying to secure a home for ourselves, we actually experience dislocation, disintegration, homelessness. And of course, I would argue that all of these things are true and they're manifestations of a deeper truth, and that is that we are spiritually homeless. The reason that we never feel at home in the world is something deeper. There's something deep within us that feels homeless, restless, unrooted, wandering, or maybe overlooked at home, lost. And sometimes this means even in your very own skin, those of you with body image problems or eating disorders, or even as we look around culture more and more, even when people are wrestling with their gender, people don't even feel at home in their own bodies, in their own souls. See, the good news that Jesus comes to tell us this morning is that we were meant to be at home. This longing for a home is a, a longing that he has given us. We see in the first pages of the Bible that we were meant to have this world as our home and to enjoy it and to be content in it. That it would be a place of safety, all of it, the world for us. And that we would be at home with one another as Adam and Eve were celebrating and praising one another. Going about good and content work comfortable in their own skins, unashamed in the presence of God, full access to him, walking with him, learning from him, being provided for by him. This is what we were meant to feel and to experience as human beings. But Jesus tells us a story here about what homelessness looks like, how we get to be homeless, as it were, and what coming home might be like. And he tells us this story because he wants all people to come home to God with him and through him. So again, the context here, what we've called uh, the, the prodigal son, Jesus is at table with a bunch of sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes, and these religious people come in, and they object morally to Jesus doing this. Doesn't he know that he's eating with these terrible people and these sinners? And in response, Jesus tells three stories about things that get lost and then found. You know, it starts with, it's like a coin at first, and here it's children. In each case, in each story, he tells about a search party or a rescue party, and it is a party. This third and famous story, it's about God and human beings, and it really is one of the best places to summarize the message of Jesus and of Christianity today, what we call the good news, the gospel. And as we walk through it, I want us to do what uh, one of my favorite writers, Alan, who wrote a book on this, uh, this parable, told us to do. It's as well as what he has. He was, he's reflecting on Rembrandt's. If you've ever seen Rembrandt's painting of the prodigal son, uh, you can go check that out afterwards. It's great. And, but what you do is you place yourself as each character in the story, that we're actually meant to identify with each character. 
And that's why I chose not to call it the prodigal son. If anything, it could be the parable of the two lost sons, or as I've called it, the prodigious father, one whose wealth and welcome and kindness and love knows no bounds. But first, the prodigal son, which you're probably most familiar with. Here he is, what he did. He willingly lost his father and all things in order to run off and to have fun. To ask your father for your inheritance before your father had died is in effect to say, you're dead to me. I don't need anything but you and your money. I don't want to have a relationship with you. Go ahead and give it to me. I'm out. Okay, this is disowning yourself. And he did this for the promise of freedom and pleasure and riches. He says, Dad, you might as well be dead. Give me my money. And then he runs off into this land and spends it to his heart content. Spends it wild. He goes crazy. And of course, in the story, the immediate reference is the people that Jesus is sitting with and accepting, people who had spent their dignity on all sorts of impoverished ways of being in the world, the quote-unquote sinners, the outsiders, the ones who are now feeling needy and left out and hungry and thirsty for connection, for love, for acceptance, for a home. And the first thing they do is realize how lost they are. They realize how messed up they are. And they start thinking, hmm, maybe I could serve my way back. I know I can't go back as a child. I have too much shame. I'm ashamed of what I've done. I'm hanging out with the pigs, which are these unclean animals. I'm in the mud. I've told my dad I wish he was dead. I've taken his money and wasted it all. But maybe I can go back and do some good things. Maybe he'll even just have me back with a little bit of slavish duty. It'll be okay. See, right there in the middle of this, Jesus' parable is that God never gives up on us. He never stops looking for us. He never stops pursuing us. He never stops being ready to embrace us when we return. That he yearns for us. He desires us. And he rejoices when we return home to him. So the question, we're, I think, more familiar with understanding ourselves as a prodigal. To think about the ways that we forget God's love and we waste his gifts. To think about the ways we're ashamed of all the things we do during the week or don't do, the thoughts that we have. And to turn back and to say, I'll come back to your presence. And the temptation is to do as the son said, well, I'll just come back and you know, I'll be really good this week. I'll make up for it, right? Or I'll write that check. Or I'll do this nice thing for someone. Or I'll fast for a whole day. But see, when the son comes back, even though that's all the son is asking for, the real challenge for the son is to humbly receive the embrace, to believe and to receive that the father is running out through the fields to grab him, that he's killing the fattened calf. He's not going to let him be a servant or a slave. He's going to put him right at the center of the feast, even though he doesn't deserve it. And he's going to celebrate because it's his great joy. It's the father's great joy to seek and save that which is lost and to bring the homeless home again. His delight, his generosity, his grace is to find the lost and to feast with them. See, it says he arose and he came home to his father, but when he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion, ran and embraced him and kissed him. The son says, I'm far, I, I've sinned, I'm no longer worthy, but the father said, shh, shh, bring the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand, shoes on his feet, bring the fattened calf and kill it. 
Let us eat and celebrate. My son was lost and he's found. See, this is the good news of the gospel. This is the good news of Christianity and it is unique and powerful and amazing. It is constantly when we are off, when we have done nothing, when we think maybe at best we'll clean up a little bit and do a little bit of slavish duty, that the Father, God comes to us and says, no, 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 no. Let me put a robe on you that you don't deserve. Let me crown you with dignity and give you the ring of authority. Let me set a feast before you because I love you. My heart is filled with compassion and joy at your presence. And so can you see yourselves in the prodigal son? Not only the fact that we've made ourselves homeless, that we've wandered away, that we've forgotten his love and wasted his gifts, but that when we come home thinking we can just clean up a little bit or just take our proper place as servants, he runs out with grace and joy, that there's nothing you can earn or do to receive the embrace or the feast. And can you begin to see your fellow friends and neighbors as prodigals all, as all of us, not just as enemies you don't like, not just the sinners over there, but prodigals that God is in love with and seeking and looking for and waiting to come home in order to give them dignity and a feast. Can you see in your enemies and those you dislike and those you ignore as the prodigal sons and daughters of God that he loves and is ready to celebrate and serve a feast to and to bring home. Psychologist Chuck DeGroat and pastor says this, people are not meant to be fixed. They're made to be found. I think that's lovely. We're just trying to fix everyone else else and get them to act more like we do or think what we think, or do we believe that their deepest need and dignity is to be found by God himself? But see, Jesus does something interesting here. That's where we usually stop sermons, but he keeps going. It's a two or three part, you know, short film, if you will, that he's showing them. He goes on and he tells us, and of course, he wants the Pharisees and the religious people you know, the church-going folk at the time, he wants them to hear the second part of this story. The elder brother, this whole other character. The elder brother was angry and refused to go in. Remember, he had received half of the inheritance when the younger son asked for it. He stayed home. He did what was right. He was working on the farm. He was helping out. He didn't really ask for much. He just did his slavish duty. And he was angry. And refused to go into the party that they were throwing for his messed up little brother. So his father comes outside, outside of the house, looking for the elder brother. He finds him and he implores him, come inside to the feast, come home. You're out here in the dark, pacing, angry, missing out on the presence and the joy and the feast. Come in. And he says to his father, look, these many years I have served you. The word serve and slave is the same in Greek. So I've slaved for you. I never disobeyed any of your commands. I've been so dutiful. Yet you never even gave me a little goat, much less a fattened calf. Just something small for me. Not even a big feast, just a, you know, a nice meal, right? You never even gave me that to celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, not my brother, this son of yours... When he came, 
Even though he devoured your entire property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And the father says, son, you are always with me. Everything that is mine is yours. And he says, in effect, come inside. It's right and proper to celebrate because I am a father who loves And my love helps me find my wayward children and bring them home. And this is what I rejoice to do. And so I'm throwing a feast. So come home, come inside, enter into this joy of mine. And we are to see ourselves like this elder brother, or perhaps especially you church-going folk. The longer you try to live the Christian life, the longer you try to do the right thing, the longer you turn away from the things you think you're not supposed to do, even though you want to, the easier it is to start, man, just feeling like, you know, this whole thing is not what I first thought it was. It's a lot of work. I'm not sure I'm getting the return I imagined. And you just kind of go about your affairs, making sure you don't get father's eyes on you in a bad way. You just do, do the right thing, just enough. Kind of staying out of his presence. And slowly becoming judgmental, joyless, resentful, angry, pouty, whiny, ungrateful, thinking you're not even getting a goat when around you are calves that are fattened and a whole property and a father whose deepest desire is just to enjoy your presence. And we don't know in this story whether the elder brother comes home. He's found by his father, but whether he accepts the invitation to come into the feast, to take his place at the table, we're not sure. It's a live question. And the reason it's a live question is because Jesus is telling it to the Pharisees and the other religious people in the room to ask them, here you are judging. Here you are Totally distant from God. Totally dislocated from his home. You are not at his table. You are not at his feast. You are not even knowing or experiencing or rejoicing in the Father. You're outside pouting and you're doing it because all of these other people that you think you're better than are getting to come in because they know their need. And they flung themselves on the mercy of God. We need to know that elder brothers are just as lost as prodigals. It's just they're lost in plain sight and in good-looking clothes. They have relational performance, but they have no love. Notice they don't ask anything from God. He never even asked for a goat. He said, you never gave me one. It's because you never asked. He wouldn't risk being dependent on his father. He obviously doesn't believe that his father is prodigious in generosity. He doesn't believe, as the psalmist tells us to believe, that in your presence, God, There is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Psalm 16. Can you see how lost elder brothers are? For all of their religious rightness, that you can be lost. I think sometimes we struggle with this a lot. It's not my place to really speak about Christianity in America. But there's a whole lot of religious veneer, a lot of asking the culture to behave a certain way, and very little sense that we can be sitting there being judgmental 
and afraid and think God is not a generous God and we're just outside pacing in the dark? Do we believe that what brings God the most joy is to seek and save that which is lost, to find it and to bring it home again, to see that joy and freedom and wealth and celebration are the indicators of God's presence in your individual life and in your community, to see ourselves in the elder brother that is so tempting to be at home and to spend a day or a week or a month trying to perform and yet be miserable, to be acting like we're all alone, working so hard when we're just one open door away from the presence of the great good God of all things who longs to give you good. Pleasures forevermore, fullness of joy. You've seen some what the Father did here, and we are to think of ourselves as prodigal. It depends on the moment, depends on the, it depends on the day, it depends on which part of your heart you're thinking about. I think you can be both in the five minutes probably, right? A prodigal and an elder brother. But one of the things that we lose that I, I feel like is important that Henry Nouwen in writing about this brings out was a, a unique thought to me when I first read it, but makes more and more sense that we, we lack some of the power of Christianity in our lives because we're only identifying sometimes with one of these lost brothers who needs to be home. And we skip the part where Jesus said over and over to these same Pharisees, you think you know the father, you think you're with him, but you actually don't because I and the father are one. So if you were receiving me, you'd be receiving the father. And if you knew me, you'd know the father but you don't. And then he tells his disciples, I'm giving you my spirit and you and I will be one. Which in this beautiful mystery of the gospel means that in some sense, by the power of the Holy Spirit and the spirit of Christ, if you believe in him, he comes to take up residence in your heart, in your body, in your life to make you his home. And then you begin to become more and more like the father. It's a simple, it's a deep thought, but it's a simple thing to just say that we are one with Christ through the Spirit, and Christ is one with the Father, and so we get to become, by his grace working in us, more and more like the Father. And so just think a little bit more about the Father here as we draw this to an application and a close. And we talked about lost and found and losing things, and we've all lost a lot of things the last couple of years. I talk about loss in terms of uh, unwilling loss and willing loss, right? So unwilling loss is a lot of the things that we didn't want to lose and that just happened to you and it's part of being in a broken world like a pandemic and friends moving away or your health going south. And then there's willing loss in which you're willing to lose something for something greater. You're willing to undergo a certain uh, athletic routine and workout to get stronger. You're willing to give up certain things for something better. That's a willing kind of loss, a sacrifice. And see, each brother here suffered a willing loss. They were like, going to party with my money sounds better than staying home with you. Working out in the fields where you're not paying attention to me, keeping my distance from you sounds like worth it to me. But this father suffered an unwilling loss. He wanted only to be with his children and to give them a home, and they chose things other than him. And so in an unwilling way, he let this suffering and loss come into his life. And that's why, because he's unwilling for it to remain in the situation, that Jesus is just showing God is a God who is always going to celebrate finding lost children 
and bringing them home. This is who the Father is because he finds you and I worth it. And Jesus isn't just telling the Pharisees this. He's living it out. He's sitting at a table with the most notorious outcasts. He's speaking to a table full of younger brothers that their shame, he's telling them their shame is not what defines them. He's speaking to a gathering of elder brothers and telling them that their contempt of God's joy is misplaced and it's keeping them from entering into their own deepest joy. And he's living it out in front of them at the center of a table, a feast, a place of joy. And he's doing this to tell everyone that all are welcome to a forever home with God again. Comfortable in their own skin, accepted. Not slavish servants, not ashamed, but children that are delighted in and given everything they need for life and health and salvation. That we can become ourselves, not only welcomed by this Father, but like this Father. Can you see yourselves becoming like him? That when we unwillingly suffer grief and loss, we see it not just as nuisances, but as an opportunity to find new people, to find prodigals, to find elder brothers and welcome them in, to say, you think you've got it all figured out. You know you think you're voting for the right people. You think you have all the right causes. You think you're feeling all these things, but guess what? Come home, there is joy. There is welcome. And it starts with humility and coming to God and receiving his joy and his feast, not just wagging your finger at all the prodigals. And prodigals, come home. Haven't you seen you spent it? You waste it. You're thirsty and you're hungry and you're alone in a far country. There is a feast at home waiting for you. There are a lot of big brothers and lost little brothers waiting to come. Henry now, since I've referred to him, I'll give you a nice quote from him here as a reflection. He says, spiritual fatherhood has nothing to do with power or control. It is a fatherhood of compassion. And I have to keep looking at the father embracing the prodigal son to catch a glimpse of this. Against my own best intentions, I find myself continually striving to acquire power. When I give advice, think about yourself as a parent if you are one, or just how you treat others around you. Again, we're trying to understand ourselves like the father. When I give advice, I want to know whether it's being followed. When I offer help, I want to be thanked. When I give money, I want it to be used my way. When I do something good, I want to be remembered. I might not get a statue or even a plaque, but I am constantly concerned that I not be forgotten, that somehow I will live on in the thoughts and deeds of others. But the father of the prodigal son is not concerned about himself. His long-suffering life has emptied him of his desires to keep in control of things. His children are his only concern. To them, he wants to give himself completely, and for them, he wants to pour out all of himself can I give without wanting anything in return? Love without putting any conditions on my love? Considering my immense need for human recognition and affection, I realize it will be a lifelong struggle. But I am also convinced that each time I step over this need and act free of my concern for return, I can trust that my life can truly bear the fruits of God's spirit. Friends, when you look in your heart and you see a prodigal wandering when you see an elder brother judging and complaining outside, listen to the entreaty of the father to come home. Come home again and again and again to return to your home. And you'll know because you'll be encountering a father who has just got an embrace 
and a robe and a ring and a fattened calf and a feast and is celebrating your return. And the more that you experience that father, the more that you will become a home for others. The more that you will become a father to others. You will become more and more at home in your own skin, even despite your failures and even despite your judgments. You will welcome yourself. You'll begin to welcome others. And you will become like this father that even goes to seek and to save those who are lost. Can we become like this? Now, here's a really simple application in closing. Closing. In closing, it may be possible that brothers and sisters in Christ are going to arrange for us to have their home become our home in this literal place. What will we do in the meantime? What will we do if that becomes true? How will we understand this home to be a home not only for us, but for others? What will it like for us to be a home to people? We may have new members joining us on Easter. We will have. And then in the months to come, even more, perhaps. That will require us to change and adapt and to sacrifice and perhaps to bring out the fattened calf. Are we ready? Do we just see people intruding on our turf? People who haven't been here sacrificing as long as we have, haven't sat through the winter in the, without a boiler? Or are we looking on the horizon for them, opening our arms, celebrating their entrance and throwing a feast? Whether we find prodigals in their party mode or in the pigsty or elder brothers looking put together in their duties, can we believe this? That grace is the celebration of life and grace is relentlessly hounding all the non-celebrants in the world. It is a floating cosmic bash shouting its way through the streets of the universe, pounding at every door in a hilarity beyond all liking and happening until the prodigals come out at last and dance and all the elder brothers finally take their fingers out of their ears. It's Father Capon. Friends, let's come home again and again. And as we come home, let us become home to one another and to the world. In the name of the Son and the Holy Spirit. Thank you.